0: Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: My name is Jay Harvey. I'm an assistant pastor and scholar in residence here at Exilic. And I'm also assistant professor of pastoral theology and the executive director at Reform Theological Seminary here in New York. Exilic is in a wonderful, um, Exilic is supporting Reform Theological Seminary uh, this year in in a partnership relationship for some initiatives we're doing together, seminary and church. And first of all, I wanna give thanks for the support of the church for the brunch and panel discussion yesterday. Uh, tremendous event. We were all so encouraged to be there and um, look forward to possibly doing some things like that in the future. So thanks to you all for making that happen. Uh, Pastor Aaron asked me to introduce Dr. Ligan Duncan, who is the Chancellor and Johnny e. Richards Professor of Systematic Theology Reformed Theological Seminary. And I did a little bit of an inward groan because I think introductions are <laughs> usually kind of lame. Uh, but I wanted to be faithful, so I said, okay, let's we'll do it. Um, but then I thought, what would be interesting besides your normal introduction, I could give you all the accolades, how he you know, was a founder of uh, Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition, how our seminaries improved under his leadership, his publications, and so on and so forth. And that's all there, and you can read about that elsewhere. But I thought about you know, our mission as a congregation to engage those who are skeptical. And in our culture today, and even in the history of the church, there's a lot of skepticism with regard to institutional leadership. And there's a lot of skepticism, especially with regard to the institutional leadership in Christianity. And honestly, for good reason, sometimes. And I was thinking about what Jesus said about what a leader is. Two of his disciples asked them, asked Jesus, if they could be great. And Jesus had a come-to-Jesus moment with them to talk about that question. And he said, basically, listen, the world in which you live, which he called the Gentile world, defines greatness in terms of the exercise of authority. But in the kingdom of God, greatness is defined by what a servant you are. You must be a servant if you're going to be great. Indeed, you'll be the least of all. You'll be a slave, Jesus says, to those around you. And what I'd want you to know about Ligan is that he is first and foremost, in my mind, a servant. Uh, deeply loves the Lord. He was my pastor in seminary some of you know my family's had significant medical challenges throughout the years and he's availed himself to us in times of crisis when it was deeply inconvenient to him he served us personally not just one or two times but throughout the past 20 years he served our denomination at cost to himself because he signed a personal resolution to lead the entire denomination the Presbyterian church in america to repentance for complicity in racism in the civil rights era. Now we're Presbyterians if, you, if you're a guest here today, and what that means is we do everything slowly and by committees. So to do something on your own like that is to put a big target on your back. And a lot of people hit that target right on. But he had courage to do that anyway, to serve the church and to serve the Lord. And lastly, just a little anecdote about the way he, he encourages all of us to serve our students and the way he models that. I live here in Manhattan, and uh, Ligon comes in to teach uh, once or twice a year. And last January, he was coming in, and I usually plan to be there to greet him, but as can happen sometimes in New York with the trains, you know, it's a little late. Um, So I show up, and there he is with another student uh, counseling that student about something going on in his family, and at the same time he's doing that, he's moving around the tables and setting up the room for the class, not waiting for anybody else to get there, but doing it himself. It's a picture of his heart, not only for the student, but the way he seeks to model servant leadership for all of us. So the main thing I want to introduce Uh, my friend and uh, brother and pastor to you, Ligondukanez is chiefly as a servant.
2: To be with you all today. Keep uh, your bulletin out with the scripture passage that was read because we're going to get back to it. But I want to introduce the topic you will see in the sermon title, How to Keep Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, Really, the topic and the passage that I'm looking at today came out of a conversation with your pastor. Your pastor suggested that we look at this issue because it's on our minds right now. Uh, There have been a number of prominent uh, Christian uh, leaders in the last few months who have announced that they no longer believe. And uh, that has generated a lot of questions, uh, some concern, and, and certainly a lot of conversation in the Christian community. You know, there are hashtags on Twitter like ex-evangelicals or empty the pews. The, and, and this seems to be something that's featured in our culture. By the way, there's a reason why. Uh, the, the, whole, um, the, the whole phenomenon of deconversions is it's a function of something that's going on in our culture. Our, our culture is not friendly to faith. And uh, when it sees hypocrisy in the church, when it experiences things like abuse in the church, it views that as an, oper, uh, as a, as an opportunity to invalidate Christianity. You know, so when the, when the church fails, when there's failure, like, like Jay was just talking about, failure in institutional leadership, the culture sees that as an opportunity to say, see... Christianity is not real. And so one reason you hear about deconversion stories more than you used to is, A, social media, right? It's amazing. I was in Indonesia uh, two weeks ago, and I was hearing things in Indonesia as quickly as you were in New York City. Why? Twitter. Twitter. You know, something can happen five minutes ago. I'd get a text from Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm in Jakarta, Indonesia, and say, hey, did you know? And and my answer was, yep, I already heard. Why? Because of Twitter. Uh, So our world is super connected. We know a lot that's going on around us. And then there are a lot of people using those modes of communication to pass on narratives that will actually undermine belief. And so we, we just need to be wide-eyed to that phenomenon as we, enter, as, as we engage in our culture. But it's certainly appropriate to be uh, concerned when you see uh, relatively well-known and respected Christian leaders suddenly announce that they no longer believe. Uh, one is, is uh, perhaps you've heard of the name of Josh Harris. Josh contributed videos to the New City Catechism. He spoke at T4G on, uh, in a breakout session uh, many years ago. He'd been involved in the Gospel Coalition and things of this nature, Pat, pastored in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And uh, a few months ago, he announced that he was divorcing his wife and no longer a Christian. And it really uh, shook up a lot of people when they heard that. I've known Josh for a while. I've been watching him in his journey. And very frankly, one of the things I've been concerned about is he has seemed to, uh, for many, many years now, uh, have borne a weight of a personal sense of guilt and responsibility uh, for people that he has harmed through his writings and through his leadership. And I haven't been able to see him shake loose of that sense of guilt. I'm not telling you why it is that he uh, walked away from the faith because I haven't talked with Josh since he made that public announcement and I don't know what's going on uh, with the marriage. The fact that his marriage dissolved lets me know that there were at least issues going on there. We never know all the issues that are going on uh, very often even in our best friends lives you know because we we can live in our own private worlds and not tell the people that know us the best what's actually going on in our hearts. So I'm not here today to tell you why all that happened I'm just telling you I've been watching Josh's trajectory and when it happened though I was sad and though I hope this is just a season that he's straying and that the Lord will bring him back to himself I wasn't actually surprised when it happened because of what I've seen him walking through and in the end let me just say this and I want to talk to both people who are Christians and not Christians I want to talk to believers who might be struggling with doubt and wondering about apostasy and falling away and could it happen to me and also want to address people that are not Christians who think well maybe falling away shows that Christianity is not true after all so I want to speak to both of you Uh, but I I want you to remember this when you when you're thinking about this issue this is not a new issue in Christianity Uh, really the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at in just a minute was written speaking to this very question there were people in this congregation that this pastor is writing to, is preaching to, who were being tempted to walk away from Jesus. And so th- there's a sense in which the whole book is written because of the issue of people walking away from the faith. And by the way, that's something that you see talked about in the New Testament all over the place. If we were to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19... John, in writing to the congregation that he's writing to, is talking about people who have been members of that congregation but who have left the faith. Isn't that interesting? From the first century on, we can find Christians dealing with the issue of people who publicly profess to be Christians and then at some point they walk away from the faith. So don't think that this is not an issue that the Christian church has faced before. The New Testament church understood this struggle. And all through Christian history, Christians have understood that the issue of perseverance and apostasy is a real issue that has to be addressed by the church. And by the way, I cannot possibly touch all of the issues or answer all the questions related to this subject. And so I know that your pastor and the pastoral team here at the church would love to talk with you if you have further questions. And by the way, I'll hang around as long as you want if you have questions that you'd like to explore uh, later because uh, we, we can all have our own specific sets of concerns that make us want to address this. One of the things that you will find when people walk away from the faith is that there are typically two great themes that will come out One is sin and the other is circumstances. A lot of people, when they walk away from the faith, if if you get to know the situation, there will be some sin issue in their life that is a big part of the story of why they walk away from the faith. In other people, it can be circumstances in their lives that lead them to walk away from the faith. Many of you may have heard the name of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman teaches uh, Bible and religion at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's a Princeton uh, graduate. When he went to Princeton, he went as an evangelical. He left Princeton as a non-believer. And uh, he views himself as an atheist or an agnostic, even though he teaches Bible and religion at the University of North Carolina. And uh, he will tell you in, in his own sort of autobiographical treatment of this subject, why did he walk away from the Christian faith? His answer in a word, suffering. He saw suffering unexplained, undeserved suffering in the lives of dear friends. And basically he said, how could there be a sovereign, loving God in this world and good people like this suffer? And he walked away from the faith because of that. Now that's, in other words, that his read on those circumstances led him to walk away from the faith. Now, does that mean that true believers can lose their salvation? Does that mean that Christianity is not true because somebody that professed faith in Christ walked away from that profession? No and no. True believers cannot lose their salvation. And no, professing believers walking away from the faith does not mean that Christianity is untrue. Jesus and the apostles all said that there would be people who would profess faith the name of Christ, who were not really Christians. It's very interesting in that passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 that I told you about. Go read it sometime. But in that passage, John says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And they went out from us in order that we might know that they were not of us. Now, what, what's he saying to the congregation? The reason these people left the faith, left Jesus, left the church, reveals that they were never truly Christians in the first place. And the way way we know that is, they left the faith. What's he saying? True believers don't leave the faith. But there can be false professing believers that can appear to be part of the church who can walk away from the church. And so the New Testament knows this issue and has an answer to it. Um, This church is a Presbyterian church. Uh, Not all of you will know that Presbyterians believe what is called the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, to be an adequate summary of what the Bible teaches about a variety of theological topics. And interestingly enough, it has a chapter on this subject. It's chapter... Uh, 17 and it's called of the perseverance of the saints and it says three things in that chapter in section one it says they whom god hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved in other words true believers cannot be lost if you are in Christ if you are united to Christ by God's grace by the work of the Holy Spirit by faith in him you cannot be lost it's very important for struggling and doubting believers to hear because it's very easy isn't it to doubt our own maturity to doubt our own faith or for our doubts to unsettle our faith And so it's important for true believers to know true believers cannot fall away. But the second thing it goes on to say is why this is. Secondly, the perseverance of the saint depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father and upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of of Jesus Christ the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility of our perseverance. In other words, our persevering as Christians does not ultimately depend on us. It depends upon the work of God in us. I heard a famous Christian stand up at a conference once and say, If I could lose my salvation, I would. Now, you know, it it shocked us all. What what, what was he saying? He was saying this. If my salvation, if keeping my salvation was dependent on me, I'd lose it. So what was he saying? He was saying my perseverance in salvation depends upon the work of God ultimately. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I don't have to attend the means of grace. It doesn't mean that I don't have to trust in Christ and walk by faith and uh, uh, receive the word of God and be built up in the word of God and receive the sacraments and be built up in God's promises and walk uh, in the way that the Lord teaches in his word. But ultimately, our perseverance uh, depends upon God. Uh, If my salvation and and, uh, my endurance in that salvation ultimately depends on me, I'd lose it. But because God in his grace, God doesn't save us and say, okay, now you're on your own. You know, go live the Christian life. Do the best you can. Uh, God saves us by grace, and then he sanctifies us by grace, and he keeps us by grace to the end. And so what that makes us do is not be presumptuous on his grace. It makes us be dependent upon his grace. We're constantly leaning back into him. Um, a, a, one of the best prayers of the Christian life is, Lord, help me. I, I've probably prayed that prayer more than any other prayer I've ever prayed in my life. I'm constantly saying, Lord, help me. And, and partly what I'm saying is, I can't do this. You know, we have a saying in our culture, I got this, I got this. Well, look, prayer in the Christian life is, like, and, and pardon this English, prayer in the Christian life is like saying, I don't got this. Right, you're saying, no, no, I can't handle this, Lord. If it's up to me, I want, I want win, I want be able to do what I need to do. So, Lord, help me. And so, the, the Christian life is lived in dependence upon God's grace. But then the confession goes on very wisely to say, nevertheless, they may—that is, professing Christians, real Christians. May through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit and come to be deprived of some of the measures of their graces and comforts and have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded and hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgment upon themselves. It's, very, it's a very realistic and honest statement that, that it's possible, even for true believers sometimes, to appear to walk away for a time from the faith or to not be walking with God. And yet that does not undermine the certainty of God's promises to his people. He will not lose his own people. So with with that in mind, let me just remind you of three principles that we're going to learn in this passage. One, true believers, true believers cannot lose their salvation. Two, True believers cannot lose their salvation, but the reason that they cannot lose their salvation is because of God. It's not because of them. Our perseverance is based on the work of God in us. We must always rely and depend upon him. But the third thing is this. The Christian life is not lived by accident, and enduring in the faith is something that takes diligence. You you don't just accidentally live the whole Christian life. You have to deliberately live that Christian life. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. If I could outline the book of Hebrews up to this point to you in three parts, it would be like this. Chapters 1 to 10 are basically saying this, Jesus is better than anything. Now, why is the author of Hebrews saying that? Because somebody is saying to this congregation... You can have everything you get in Christianity if you will just walk away from Jesus, walk away from this apostolic teaching, and come back to your Jewish cultural heritage. We can give you everything that Christianity is offering you without you having to walk away from your family and from your culture and from your religious roots. Um, you know there's a debate on where this congregation is some people think think it's in Alexandria some of us, some people think it's in Rome some people think it's in Palestine I think the congregation's in Palestine because the kinds of temptations to apostasy that the pastor is addressing in this book look like somebody who is a Jewish Essene that was a particular religious group that was around during Jesus day it looks like somebody who is a Jewish Essene is telling these people, come back to our kind of Judaism and you can have everything that you have in Christianity without cutting yourself off from your family and your culture. And it looks like some people in this congregation have done that. And so the, author, the, the pastor is preaching a message to his congregation and he says, Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the tabernacle and the temple. He's better than the Jewish ritual. Now, why would you be saying that if the congregation was made up primarily of Gentiles? You wouldn't. It's, this is clearly a congregation that's made up of a lot of Jewish Christians. And why would you be saying that unless somebody is telling them that Moses is better than Jesus? or that the religious system of Israel is better than Jesus. And so he says, no, no, Jesus is better than anything. And he makes that argument for 10 10 chapters. And then in chapters 10 and 11, he makes a second argument. It's basically, keep on believing. Don't stop believing in Jesus. You started off in the Christian life by believing in Jesus. Guess how you continue in the Christian life by believing in Jesus. And guess how you end and endure in the Christian life? By believing in Jesus and then in chapter 11 what does he do he gives you all of these wonderful mostly Old Testament examples of how true believers had to live by faith they had to they had to put their hope in God's future promises that had not come about in their time They had to put their hope in God's promises that would only be brought about by the coming of the Messiah. And so in a sense, they had put their faith in Jesus and they had lived their life in faith and in hope. And and then having given that example, he turns to his own congregation and he says, live like they did, Live, live in faith in the coming of the Messiah just like those Old Testament saints did. That brings us to the chapter that we're looking at today. And I'd just like you to see three things in this passage. To live the Christian life, you must fix your eyes on Jesus and prepare to run a distance, a distant race. And one of the battles for us enduring to the end is sin. One of the battles is how we deal with our circumstances and one of the battles is making sure that we're fixing our eyes on the prize, that we're really, we're, we're starting the Christian life off knowing that our goal is not to believe part of the Christian life. Our goal is to believe all of our Christian lives until the last breath that we take in this world and we wake up in the presence of God. So we, we have to have a view for the end, for the long haul, for crossing the finish line. Remember how Paul says in his final letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I think that's where the pastor got the idea for, for, the, for the language of the sermon title, how to keep our faith. Without losing it. Here's Paul saying, I've kept the faith. I've, I've crossed the finish line. Uh, I've, I've lived my whole life unto Jesus. Well, we've, we've got to have that attitude. We're in a long race, and we want to finish it. We, want, we don't want to get part of the way. We want to get all of the way, and that's what this passage is about. So let's look at three things that we see here. First of all, look at verses 1 to 3. There the author of Hebrews says this, to live the Christian life, you must fix your eyes on Jesus and prepare for the long run. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me pause right there. He's, he's um, giving the metaphor of the Christian life as a distance race. Uh, I have an elder in, in the church that I pastored back in Jackson who runs ultra marathons. You know, not just 26.2 miles, but 50 miles or 100 miles. I cannot imagine what that does to your joints. But, but, but he does those things. And um, if, if you're going to run an ultra marathon, endurance is everything, right? You know, pacing yourself with the goal of finishing the thing is that that's what it's all about well here's Paul saying that's really what the Christian life is like it's not a sprint it's an ultra marathon and you you have to start the Christian life with that mindset you know that it's it's you know the old song it's not how you start it's how you finish well, that, that's, this, that's the case in the Christian life. You, you, you have to live the Christian life with a view to crossing the finish line. Uh, and so Paul, the, the author of, of Hebrews here, gives you this picture of the Christian life as a marathon. And how do you do it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he, he points to Jesus as the example for how we are to live the Christian life. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear, Jesus is much more than an example He's much more than a teacher. He's God in the flesh who is our Savior, who lived and died and bore our sins in our place so that everybody who trusts in him is counted as righteous in him, is forgiven of our sins and accepted in him for his righteousness alone. So Jesus is much more than a teacher and he's much more than a good example, but he is the example of the Christian life. And and notice the the point here is, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame of it for the glory that was set before him. And so, you remember what I said? When, When I see people walk away from the faith, typically there'll be two things operating or maybe one of two things or both. There's, there's a sin in their lives that has just undermined their faith or there's something that has happened in their circumstances that has undermined their faith. It could be their own health. They've lost their own health. And because of that, they, they just no longer believe in God's providence and care for them. Or it could be they face some tragedy in their life that has rocked their mental and moral and theological world. Or it could be that there is a sin that is undermining their confidence in the truthfulness of God and his word and of the gospel. By the way, notice how the author of Hebrews talks about both of those things. You have to lay aside your sin, which entangles you. And then you have to look to Jesus who endured the cross. The the cross was not a sin for Jesus. It was a sin for us to crucify Jesus. He he wasn't sinning in enduring the cross. But boy, was that an awful circumstance for him, right? He didn't deserve that, but that's what he got in life. And how did he endure it? it? He endured it by despising the shame because of the glory and the joy set before him. So, so the author says you've got to lay aside your sin, but you've also got to deal with those circumstances in your life with a view to the joy that only God can give when you cross the finish line. So it's interesting that Jesus is the example of how you address both of those things in this passage. But how, how is it that you persevere in the Christian life? You realize this is a distance race. And I've, I've got to set aside everything that encumbers me. I've got to be deliberate about running this race and I've got to fix my eyes on Jesus because Jesus will show me how to live the Christian life. The second thing, look at verses 4 to 6 and especially verse 4. He's, strikingly, this preacher says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> wow. He's like, you hadn't died yet trying to live the Christian life. Now, what, what's he doing? He's setting your, expect, your expectations. He's saying, living the Christian life sometimes is going to feel like you're dying. It's going to feel like God is killing you. Um, William Still was a famous pastor in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, he was a bachelor who lived and pastored into his 80s. He was a, an amazing man. And uh, his sort of ministerial autobiography was called Dying to live. What a great title for a Christian minister and for a Christian's autobiography, because that's what the Christian life is all about dying to live. We die daily. Christian life, the Christian life is about dying to self, it's about d- dying to our own desires and living to God and to the joys that only He can give. And the author of Hebrews says um, so. If you're living in the Christian life and um, you're not dead yet, uh, you're not finished. (laughs) You've still got a ways to go. I love what John Calvin says about this passage. He says, Christ has no soldiers that he discharges until they have conquered death itself is that not an awesome sentence? Christ has no soldiers that he has discharged until they have conquered death itself. In other words, you don't get to lay down your sword in the fight. You don't get to lay down your commission in the Christian life until you have crossed the finish line of death into life eternal. So the, the, the author here is trying to get you ready to fight the very hard fight of faith. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're dying. And I have no doubt that that's one of the things that happens. Some people, they feel like they're dying, and they think, oh, no, something's wrong. And they walk away from the faith. And, and by the way, have you noticed how it's, it's a really interesting thing? You can see two people face the same hard circumstance in their life, and in one of those people, it will build them up, and the other person, they'll walk away. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's explained in the next section. If you look at verses 7 to 11, he says this. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? In other words, he's saying when those hard things come into your life, which tempt you to say, what are you doing, God? Why is this happening to me? And and in some of us, it makes us question, is there a God? Is this gospel true? Is the Bible true? And, and he says this, children, doesn't a good father discipline his children? Well, so does our heavenly father. And many of those hard circumstances in our lives are things that he intends to build us up in grace so that we are stronger, so that we can minister to others in weakness. And so you can see, Two people face the same struggle and one of them will grow. Why? Because that's a true Christian and the father is using even that hard thing to grow that person in faith. And the other one will walk away because that person doesn't really believe in the providence of God, doesn't really believe in the good, loving discipline of God, and all true believers believe in the providence of God and the good and loving discipline of God. And I, I see that happen very, very frequently. A circumstance will happen, just like, go back to Bart Ehrman again, you'll see suffering. Well, you know, to me, suffering is the least surprising thing in this sinful world, right? It does not surprise me at all to see suffering. What, what surprises me is to see the bountiful blessings of God in this world. People often say, how are you doing, Ligon? And my typical response is, better than I ought to be. And the reason I say that is if I were getting what I deserve right now, I would be in the lowest circles of hell. And so everything above that is a plus in my category. Uh, And so suffering doesn't surprise me, but the bountiful blessings of God do. But with some people, suffering will lead them away from God, while in the other case, other people's suffering will lead them to God. Think of Johnny Erickson Tata. You know, she could be a bitter, bitter person. She's a a beautiful, intelligent, athletic young woman and she dives off the edge of a pier and she breaks her neck in her teenage years and she becomes wheelchair ridden and uh, paraplegic. And she'll tell you today, I thank God that he put me in that wheelchair because he has taught me what he is like. And yet you could have the same thing happen to another person and they're bitter and they're angry at God and they walk away from the faith. What's the difference? For Johnny, she is the beloved child of God. And he is disciplining her to make her more like himself, more like Jesus. And she knows it. Doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, it's really, really hard. She has had to live a really hard life physical life. And yet when you see that woman smile it's an amazing thing and when you hear her talk and teach it's an amazing thing. So the, the the author of Hebrews is just saying this. You have to realize that the Christian life is a distance race. You have to be prepared for its hardship and to feel like you're dying. You have to realize that the circumstances and the hardships of our life are the, they, those are the designs of God's discipline in order to make us more like him. And so the difference between people who face those circumstances and grow and those who experience those things and walk away is that true believers believe in the kind providence and discipline of their father. They trust him even in those hard things. So as we think about the issue of apostasy today, let's just remember this. True believers persevere. They are never lost. The reason they're not lost is not because we're better than other people, but because God in his kindness keeps us. If we could lose our salvation, we would. But as believers, the author of Hebrews is exhorting us, look, you cannot live the Christian life undeliberately. That the Christian life, you've got to be prepared to fight against sin, and you've got to be prepared to endure hardship. And you've got to deliberately plan to live to win the prize, to cross the finish line, to fight the good fight, to finish the race. You want to finish a number of years ago, uh, my dear friend Mark Dever, who is the senior pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and, and, and by the way, Mark is one of the best personal evangelists I've ever met. I, he, he has an amazing ability to lead people to faith in Christ, and particularly skeptical people because Mark, when he was a 10-year-old, read the entire Harvard Classics was ten years old and declared himself an agnostic and um, six years later came out of that agnosticism and became a christian and uh, and so he has a he has a unique knack for understanding how skeptics think and and how to talk about Christ in the gospel and the Bible with them he 's amazingly effective in leading people to faith in Christ and he loves to tell people about Jesus well on one occasion. His, um some of his pastoral staff had come into his study, and they said, hey, uh, Mark, you know Tim, that skeptical guy that we've been talking to for two years about Christianity? He has made a profession of faith. He's become a Christian. And Mark said, I was in there, and uh, Mark said, um, we'll see. And, you know, that's a real downer of a, of a response, right? It, but, but look, Mark wasn't saying anything disrespectful about Tim or about the pastoral staff or about his own efforts to share the gospel with Tim. His point was this. It's great that Tim has come to the point now that he considers himself a Christian. But what I want to see is I want to see Tim live the whole Christian life. I want to see him finish the Christian life as a Christian, and look, that's what every good pastor wants for you. We, we want you to cross the finish line. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want you just to join our church. We want to see you cross the finish line. We want you safe in the arm of Jesus. Only when you are safe in the arms of Jesus will our desires for you have been accomplished. And that means we're going to run that race right beside you all the way to the end. That's one of the neat things about it's. It's harder to happen here in the in in New York City, but I I realized this in my ministry. I ministered for about seventeen years in a um, in a southern downtown church, and I got to um, I got to baptize children, and I got to bury saints, and I realized that the the way that God planned it for. For, for pastors was to be involved in their people's lives from womb to tomb. We, we, we're there when mama has that baby and we go visit mama and daddy in the hospital. We're there when we baptize those children and then we're walking in front of that casket when they're putting you in the ground because the, 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 the Christian minister wants to walk next to you in that long race the whole of the Christian life because Christian life is not for sissies. It's hard. It's a race. It's a fight. Don't be surprised by that, and don't be surprised when some people seem to fall away. When when they fall away, we pray, Lord, bring them back, bring them back, because that happens sometimes, doesn't it? People will for a season walk away, and the Lord will bring them back. That's we want to bring them back. But no matter what, we remember, if we're true believers, God will not let go of us. Let's pray.